Hello and welcome to Workhorse, the podcast about Royal Australian Air Force C-130 Hercules aircraft. Today we're going to be taking a look at aerial firefighting. I'm your host, Bill Karolakis. Some of you know me as K-9. I served over 30 years in the Canadian and Australian Air Forces, primarily in air mobility roles. In this historically informative podcast series, I cover the entire history of Australian C-130s, including a look at how Australian history was shaped by Australia's Hercules aircraft. This podcast is generally chronological, and it's based upon an extensive history book I wrote about Australian Air Force C-130s, titled Air Mobility Workhorse, which should be published in late 2024. All right, let's get into the topic of the day. Those of us from Australia know that of all the disasters that befall the Australian community, bushfires spark the most fear in the hearts of those living near forests. When fires are raging around a community, the local fire services need all the help they can get to prevent disaster. As happens all too often, and with all too much tragedy, sometimes the fire services get overwhelmed. In the aftermath of such disasters, calls come for governments to do more, and on occasion, there's a public outcry for the ADF to help fight those fires. Such was the case after the January to February 1977 fires in Victoria. A board of inquiry investigated the causes of a series of concurrent bushfires that led to much damage and killed many people at that time. The Board of Inquiry published its findings in October 77, and although the ADF wasn't highlighted as a potential source of aviation firefighting assets, the Board's report noted the benefits that would be derived from using firefighting aircraft. And notably, the Board found that aircraft should be made available for coordinating firefighting, and it also recommended the government obtain aircraft such as large, sophisticated water tankers. So, after yet another severe fire season in 1980-81, which C-130s, by the way, supported by transporting Navy helicopters and personnel, which were then used to help fight those fires, the Forest Commission Victoria sourced a modular airborne firefighting system, and the acronym for that is MAFS, and they sourced it from the U.S., and it was formally requested that a C-130 be modified to carry it. The MAFS was in service with the United States Forestry Service and was well-suited for installation in Hercules. It came with some overheads. Cost-effectiveness was particularly an early concern for Australia. Despite that concern, given the severity of the recent fires and the purported success of MAFS overseas, it was determined the system should be trialed in the 1981-82 fire season. The Australian government was slow to agree, but by mid-1981, it was clear to 36 Squadron that the C-130H was going to have to be made available for the trial. Instead of sending a dedicated aircraft and crew for MAFS training, a C-130H crew that was planned to be in the U.S. for exercise rodeo, led by Squadron Leader Bill Matties, was selected to train on the MAFS as an adjunct to the exercise. The crew, support staff, and civilian firefighting staff flew to Idaho for training on the MAFs. They were trained by U.S. National Guard C-130 operators under the guidance of the Boise Interagency Fire Center in Idaho. The RAF crews learned the main aim of the MAFs was to lay down a fire line. Now, these fire lines were intended to give the firefighters on the ground a better chance to fight the fire. Now, this is, of course, instead of the MAFs actually trying to put out the fire itself, 
Using the U.S. Forestry Service methodology, Victorian forestry personnel delivered additional training in Australia for the initial two C-130H crews and another two crews over the week of 21 to 25 September 1981. And the pilots trained included Bill Matthews, Jeff Kubank, Graham Weitz, Kevin Beach, and Greg Ronan. To achieve an effective drop, the retardant had to land on the ground in sufficient density to slow the fire. Since the MAF's equipment forced the retardant out using compressed air, the retardant became aerosolized and came out as a fine rain or a mist. To compensate for the misting, sufficient density was best achieved by flying low to the ground and as slow as possible. The drops were flown at 30 to 50 meters above the treetops, and using a grease pencil to write on the co-pilot's window, stall speeds for the various angles of bank were ready at hand throughout the flight. These speeds were critical when descending on the downslopes of hills to drop retardant on the flames racing uphill, or into deep ravines, which were entered into from as slow a speed as the crew could manage, often really close to the stall margin. The flight's profile was further complicated by a few other factors. The compressed nature of the retardant and the position of the dispensing pipes meant that the C-130s actually gained a couple of knots of speed during retardant release. And with all the low-level maneuvering on particularly hot days, another problem was that engine oil temperatures would soar, causing the crews to have to retard throttles and fly asymmetrically to help cool the engines. Not an ideal technique when flying near the stall speed, I'd say. Finally, these operations were flown with full fuel in the outer wings to provide structural integrity while maneuvering with such a heavy load. A full MAFS load, by the way, was 37,000 pounds, so MAFS missions tended to take off at max all-up weight of 155,000 pounds. Compounding the challenges, fire retardants and aircraft were in short supply making the coordination between the command aircraft and the Hercules critical to ensuring the retardant wasn't wasted. Given the smoky conditions, often in high winds, and the confusion of having to coordinate with the command aircraft and other aircraft in the area, the drops sometimes required several passes before an accurate and effective release could be achieved. So those are pretty demanding flying conditions, and Commanding Officer 36 Squadron 1 Commander Arthur White later recalled that MAFS was the most dangerous flying he'd ever done. And this was someone who flew ferry gannets on and off aircraft carriers, by the way. It's no small wonder there were some firefighting aviation incidents around the world in the following decades. The crash of the Colson C-130 during a firefighting drop near Kuma, New South Wales on 23 January 2020 was a tragic testimony to the challenging environment of firefighting aviation. The MAFS installation took place at Richmond during January 1982. The modifications included the dispensing equipment, a compressed air system, and a control console from which the loadmaster managed the MAFS. During flight, the MAFS was lowered into position from the loadmaster's console in the cargo compartment, the loadmaster controlled pressure settings at the points of release and adjusted them throughout the release phase. Later in the operation, C-130H crews modified one of their HF radios to enable better communications with the civilian emergency FM radio network, much to the chagrin of the engineers who didn't review the modification beforehand. Hooray, one for the pilots. The ADF could not afford to lose an entire C-130's cargo capacity to permanently installed MAFs. Therefore, the modification was designed to be easily installed and removed from the aircraft within a few hours. 
Despite the ease of the installation, the aircraft needed to have external fuel tanks removed to enable better handling. The removal of the external fuel tanks and reinstallation at a later date was achieved in less than a day, but it was a considerable task to undertake, so tail changes were done only out of necessity. There were resource implications at the three operating sites, which were Mangalore, Hamilton, and East Sale, including the need for air compressors, compressed air storage, retardant mixing equipment, and storage for two full loads of retardants, which was 22,500 liters at each site. These arrangements were intended to support up to six sorties a day with a minimum of one hour between sorties. During the first two weeks of January 82, in the lead up to the first operational season, in-flight training took place around Richmond, and training then shifted to the three locations where the MAFs retardant mixing and pumping equipment was being readied for the fire season. And the MAFs capability was fully operational by February 1982. From then, the RAF agreed it could maintain a four-hour call-out from Richmond. This short-notice posture was intended to assist in fighting fires as they were discovered. But this proved to be difficult to accomplish, and the standby posture was deemed to be ineffective. Consequently, a MAFs modified aircraft and one crew were kept on standby at Richmond to move to one of the three Victorian MAFs-enabled bases to operate the day after being called out. Once the first crew was called out, additional train crews could then be recalled and sent to the relevant operating location as needed. Well, it finally happened. A series of fires broke out in late February 82, and A97-011 took part in fighting four of these in the Broadford, Orbost, and Bright areas between 4th and 14th February. Of these fires, two were assessed by the Force Commission Victoria as having been better controlled due to the C-130's firefighting support, and it was noted the RAF crews were able to fly in demanding terrain. Although the 81-82 fire season was considered to have posed minimal risk, the Forest Commission of Victoria concluded the initial C-130 firefighting trial was a limited success. They also noted C-130s would be able to lay down a 400-meter-long fire line in advance of large fires, but that wasn't fully tested in the 81-82 season. So, given the uncertain results and the limited opportunities to test the MAFs in the 81-82 fire season, because there were only 22 operational sorties that were flown that year, Victoria decided to continue the trial for the next season, and the RAF agreed to refit the MAFS equipment, and they did so under the name Operation Quench. Under the instruction of Bill Matty's four MAFS crews, including Wing Commander White, made practice drops in the local Richmond area from 17 to 21 January 1983, following which the crews were on standby for the 1983 fire season. Crews were called out in late January and flew MAFS missions at a steady pace until early March. Throughout Operation Quench, two crews were positioned in Victoria with the aircraft, with one normally flying morning sorties and the other flying afternoon sorties, completing from one to seven sorties on a given day. The aircraft were refueled and reloaded at the three Victorian airfields by personnel from 486 Squadron and other RAF and Army units helped out as well. Given the demanding flying schedule, the crews were rotated out of the operation every few days. The fire season turned out to be fairly severe, and it included the infamous Ash Wednesday, which was 16 February 1983, during which there were over 100 fires burning, over 27,000 heads of livestock were lost, 2,000 homes burned, and 47 people died. During the firebombing operations on Mount Macedon in Victoria, 
C-130 crews saw houses exploding into flames before their very eyes. The sight of A-97-011 flying low over trees greeted one family on the 3rd of February as they defended their home with a garden hose in Cherokee, Victoria, which is near the Mount Macedon fire. Fortunately for them, just as the fire was less than 100 meters away and getting too close to fight anymore, the Herc roared overhead at treetop level and dropped a fire line between them and the fire and saved the day. Well, from what could be gleaned in the confusion of the firefighting, it was apparent C-130 MAFs enabled firefighters to save a few other homes from destruction. Even after Ash Wednesday, fires continued to rage, and Bill Maddies described a redout at the Can River area in late February when all his crew could see was smoke, flying embers, and a wall of red flames from the reflection of the fire on the sea in front of them as they approached the fire along the coast. In all, 36 Squadron used MAFS equipment to drop fire retardants over 150 times on 25 fires during Operation Quench. In the aftermath of Ash Wednesday, the 83 fire season, and the continuing bushfires in Australia, there were several in-depth reviews to consider the causes and what mix of firefighting techniques and what equipment should be used for future firefighting. Some of these reviews considered the merits of MAFs and employments of C-130s in firefighting. The findings were mixed. Large aircraft and MAFs offered some obvious utility in terms of fighting fires, particularly that C-130 MAFs could lay down effective fire lines more rapidly than light aircraft. Despite that effectiveness, firefighters on the ground assessed the C-130's direct firefighting benefits were not much different to having many light aircraft. There was also some criticism about turnaround times and proficiency with the MAFs, but it was acknowledged that those criticisms were largely due to the general inexperience in Australia with that system. Some of that inexperience was in coordinating with the command aircraft crews. RAF crews found they were more effective when carrying an experienced aerial firefighter in the Hercules cockpit. The reviews made little mention of the pumping equipment, and that was important because the Australian retardant pump took about 20 minutes to load a C-130 versus about 10 minutes for the pumps used by U.S. firefighting agencies. Those were precious few minutes, of course, for those whose homes were in danger. It was accepted that if MAFs was used regularly, in time, Australia would likely have achieved the same level of effectiveness as the U.S. Despite some advantages, C-130s with MAFs were not retained as a firefighting capability after 1983, and that was primarily due to cost. Aside from the $1 million price tag for the system, the cost of C-130s was unaffordable for Victoria. And that's because, as was common practice at the time, and for a long time thereafter, Defense's policy for interdepartmental cost recovery was based on a term called full cost recovery. That meant that both the direct costs, such as fuel, and the indirect costs, such as maintenance and purchase of the aircraft, were all rolled up into what the hourly rate was for the aircraft. The resultant fees were so exorbitant that Victoria deemed the RAF and MAFS combination was poor value for money. No kidding. This was particularly true when they compared the operational effect of six light aircraft against one C-130H, and they basically determined that the smaller aircraft could deliver a similar firefighting capability as a C-130 for far less cost. And even though it was already exorbitant, that cost would have been higher if the RAF had fully understood the corrosion effect that retardant was having on the aircraft involved in Operation Quench. And that came to light later on 
despite the daily washing which happened after every MAFS operation. But of course, we'll cover corrosion and engineering and maintenance again in a future podcast. That's all for today. In the next episode, we'll talk about Antarctica. If you know anyone that loves aviation, military history, or was a passenger on a C-130, please tell them about the Workhorse Podcast. Thanks for listening.